All right. How I got here. You know, that's where I ended last night, was that I got to Al-Anon. Well, when I got here, um, I was not a happy person to be here. I didn't want to be here. I was angry. I had a lot of rage, and I had a lot of fear. I had a lot of guilt from things that I had done. And I tell you, one of the most crushing things that I learned in the beginning was that alcoholism was a disease. And the reason I say this is crushing, do you realize what I was doing to a sick human being? I did. I thought about all the physical abuse. I thought about all the verbal abuse, and I had tremendous guilt, and I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't tell anybody. I went, my first group that I went to, there were two other women there, and they had been there in the program about three or four months longer than I. So we were all struggling together. But fortunately, there were several other groups of long-standing in town, and I began to go to some of those. And you know, those ladies appeared so sweet. The little thin-lipped ones, you know. I think a lot of the AA groups refer to them as the cookie-baking bitches, you know. These were those sweet little sisters that never said a, a, a little trashy word or of any kind, and they were all goody-two-shoes, and they went to their church every Sunday, and that wasn't me. That wasn't me. And I was finding it hard to relate until one night... This one old woman stood up and she was talking about how she took a baseball bat to her husband and they were all going, ah! and I thought, God, go for it! <laughs> I thought, I love her. Because now, do you realize that when you share in a meeting, you give people permission to share? And by her telling that, I was able to start and to relate some of the physical abuse that I had done and be able to get some of this stuff out of my gut. So many times. So many times. Um, I, I loved when I gave my husband the antabuse. I really thought that was a cure for the alcoholism. And I wished after I got an Alnon there was a pill that I could take that would make me not want to bitch and gripe and nag. And J.D. certainly wished that. Um, Nothing changed too much in my life the first year I was in the, pro in the program. And the reason was, I didn't do anything but go to meetings. That's all I did. But I was in a meeting every day. I went to a meeting, 365 in 365 days. Because I felt good in those meetings. I'd hear this stuff, and I'd feel good, but I couldn't take it home and do anything with it. I would talk to my sponsor, but I still couldn't do anything with it. And I think that she knew I was at that point where I was having to filter this stuff. You see, I am, I had always prided myself on being an intellectual. And I had it real hard trying to identify feelings. Very hard. I would have feelings, but I wouldn't know what they were. And I didn't know how to identify them. And so it took me a year. But nothing really changed in my life during that year because I wasn't doing anything different other than going to meetings. It's like sitting in a garage, don't make you a car, you know. And I sit there, you know, and I sit there, and I'd listen. She's having an attack. Okay. <laughs> 
And finally I began to see that I was powerless. See, in the beginning, being powerless over alcohol was not a big deal. Alcohol didn't affect me like it did him. And the way that my sponsor worked with me, she said, you know, you are powerless over what alcohol does. And I thought, now that's true. Once you take alcohol in, you are powerless over what the alcohol does. And I knew that I was powerless to keep him away from alcohol. So I was powerless over alcohol. She said, did you ever think about you were powerless over the man? No. No. It never occurred to me. And she said, well, how well does it work? And I said, well, it works as much as he wants to let it work. You see, he would let me dictate how we were to be, as, as he put it one time, he was as hentex as he wanted to be. On things that didn't bother him and doing issues with him, he'd let me have my way. It was no big deal. And then all of a sudden, one day, it would hit an issue that he was concerned about or that he did feel strongly about, and then he would balk. And I couldn't understand why it was, because he was, he was minding so well as we went along. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he would balk. And it never occurred to me that this was not healthy relationship. It never occurred to me. I just felt like that I was the intellectual of our family and that, uh, you know, I had all this wisdom and all this knowledge I was doing so well with. And I was explaining this to my sponsor, and she said, but your best thinking got you here. Now, you hate to hear logic like that. Being a logical person could see it made sense, even to me. And I said, well, that's true. And she said, what you're going to have to do is to allow him to be a person. She said, if you could have him to be just like you, that's all you'd have would be a reflection of yourself. And she said, I bet you couldn't live with that either. Now, that was a horrible thought. But the more I look at it today, that's the truth, because I usually don't get along with too well with someone who's exactly like me. And I found that he had a lot of qualities that I liked. And I never knew that because, see, I kept trying to make him be some way. When we got married, he wasn't exactly what I wanted, but he had a lot of potential. You know? Had a lot of potential. And it's funny, but if you had asked me about my husband, I would have told you all his wonderful qualities. And I would tell you, this is how he is. He's such a wonderful person. And then immediately I'd go home and try to change him. And that's crazy. That's crazy. But I didn't know that was crazy because, see, I kept thinking he needed to use his potential. And, God, I don't know what I did with my potential. Uh, but the craziness was upon me. And so when he quit drinking and started going to AA, that changed everything for me because, see, he was doing things different. And the things that I'd been faulting him on, those major things like drinking and other women and things of this nature, he quit doing those. But did you know I had a lot of resentments and a lot of hurt and a lot of things from over the years of him doing those things that I didn't have any way to deal with? And they would talk about resentments in meetings, and that was terrible for me. I hate to go to resentment meetings. Because talking about resentments brought this crap back up to me again. And I'd go home and I'd hit him. Not for what he had done now, but for something he had done four years ago that you reminded me of when you started talking about that stuff. You know, because I had all that stuff so deep inside me. Well, um, my life was unmanageable. Now, I didn't know my life was unmanageable. How could my life be unmanageable? My God, I was the one that was working. I was the one keeping the family unit together. I was paying the bills. How could my life be unmanageable? The phone would ring and I would go, like that. It never occurred to me that unmanageable, somehow in my mind, I put it together with, 
daily functioning uh, in the financial world or in keeping your house together. And that, to me, is not where my life was unmanageable. My life was unmanageable on the inside. I could not control my feelings. But I had this thing that was running around, and I felt like I had a hole in the middle in my gut, and the wind was blowing through, and I couldn't fill that up no matter what I did. I had fears. I mean, when that phone would ring or the door or someone knocked at the door, I would knock up and I knocked. Because many times that was the police, and many times that was things that I didn't want to have to deal with. So you get to where you don't want to answer the phone and you don't want to go to the door. Or uh, if you hear a siren, you automatically know it's either your house is burned down. You know, did you ever hate to, or be fearful to drive home to fear it wasn't there? You know, this is unmanageability on the inside. And I never realized that's what I had. Uh, one of the things that uh, I was taught as a child was, God will do for you what you can't do for yourself. I found that that meant that I was supposed to do everything I knew that was humanly possible first. And then, if it didn't work, then I might ask God for help. But by that time, I was so discouraged, I didn't really give a damn. And so that particular thing that I learned, which was a slogan or a little saying, nearly killed me. And what I had to realize was that God helps people who ask for help. And it never occurred to me to ask God for help before I did something. It was only after I got it screwed up that I'd say, oh, well, here it is. Now let's see what you can do with it. My biggest motivator in getting started on the steps was pain. Pain today is my biggest motivator. Now, I had a tremendous amount of pain tolerance when I came into the program. I had been in pain all my life. I had been in pain for 30 years, and I didn't know how to function without pain. You know, pain becomes comfortable after a while. Our sickness becomes comfortable to us because we don't know anything else, and it feels strange not to be operating in the sickness. It definitely feels strange. But once that I admitted that I was powerless, and that meant I had no control of, none whatsoever, that nothing I did would bring about a positive result. That was how I had to get it in my mind, that what I'm doing is not affecting a positive effect on something, that I hadn't got what it takes to do this job, then perhaps I might be powerless. You know, I was powerless over myself. So many times I would say, I'm not going to do that today. The hell I won't. You know, you would go right back to it time and time again because it was automatic. It's like I got up in the morning and I punched the automatic button and I automatically did things. I didn't stop and think about them. I just did them. And you would tell me, well, don't do that. And I'd say, okay, but I couldn't help myself. I'd find myself going back to do that again and again. I didn't like the word powerless because it blew my whole theory of life. Blew my whole theory. Uh, but the bottom line was my theory of life wasn't working. And when I could be honest enough with myself to realize that what I was doing wasn't working, it's not really doing what I thought it was doing. So, you know, everybody, I would have a perfect life if you would just let me run the world. If I could get everybody all lined up with their marching orders and if everybody followed the plan, it'd be okay. People don't do that. People are tacky.
I had a big problem with the word honesty. I didn't know what honesty meant. I thought, well, oh, that means you don't steal. And that means that you don't tell a lie. Well, now telling lies, you know, that, that's a good one right there. Think about telling lies for a minute. Well, you don't really tell a lie, but you don't really tell the truth. It's sort of a half-truth. My sponsor said, half-truth, whole lie. She said, when you willingly let somebody draw their own conclusion, you know, I would do that. I would tell you part of the thing and then let you draw your own conclusion, and if you got the wrong one, so be it. I didn't tell you that. You know, I was never responsible, you know, because you'd come back to me later and say, but you lied. And I said, no, I didn't. You assumed that. And I knew it in the beginning what you were doing. Because I could tell by your actions what you were doing that you didn't know. Um, the idea that I had to be truthful, to me the difference in honesty was it was the difference between living in denial or living in reality. Because truth is reality. And if you can't get down to the truth, you'll never know what the reality of the situation is. And nothing can change. As long as I live in the fantasy, as long as I live in the denial about something, I'll never do anything to change it over here. Okay, another thing that I learned in the first step was acceptance. My powerlessness, not only over the alcohol, but the other things, the things that I couldn't and shouldn't try to do. Like, for instance, I can't make you mind me and I shouldn't try to make you mind me. That's hard. Because every fiber of my being wanted my way, you know, with self-centeredness. That, oh, God, that self-will is so strong. And you want things your way, you know, with self-centeredness. That, oh, God, that self-will is so strong. And you want things your way. And see, that was the control. Oh, I love the control. And see, the, here, the, the irony of this is I was paid to manage and control. And I was paid good money to manage and control. But, it, you know, it's real funny. At home, I couldn't manage and control, and J.D. pointed it out to me, just a little plain piece of truth that I didn't think about. He was not being paid to mind me. <laughs> At work, these people were being paid to follow my direction. <laughs> and if you didn't, no ticky, no shirty, just like the Chinese laundry, you know. And, but at home, it didn't work that way. I should have I thought of a reward system there, but I didn't. <laughs> But uh, it, it's crazy, the things that we do. It is crazy. Okay. You know, when doctors deliver babies, they usually, I'm, on my mind, they, uh, they slap them on the butt and they hand them to their mama and they say, you have a lovely little boy. You have a lovely baby girl. Well, when the doctor handed me to mama, I'm firmly convinced he said, you have a little fixer. Because always I sit around, even today I have to watch myself, because when something happens, it occurs to me that I have the solutions. I have the answers. I will fix this if you will leave me alone. I've done this at home. I can tell you there's a lot of things at home I can't fix that I thought I could. Plumbing? I'm not too good at that. We had to have a new commode. Um, actually, it was just a little leak when I started, but I... But when I got mad because it wouldn't stop, I took my wrench and went like that and accidentally hit the bowl on the, on the china, you know. And so I don't do plumbing, you know. But if you have a problem, you know, it's real easy to look at somebody else's situation and say, I know what would work for them. 
I'm a woodworker now. And you don't really know that at all. Or how, I was one that would always say, well, now, if it were me, this is what I'd do. You don't know what you'll do till you're put in that situation because I have done things that I never dreamed I would do put in various situations. And if somebody had told me, I'd think, no, that's not what I'd do because I'm very logical. And I am very logical, but I'm also ruled by emotions that come into there. And that's my little filters that I see things through. And, and my filters alter the reality. Because when feelings get in there, feelings, in fact, are totally different. You know, facts are facts. Feelings aren't necessarily facts. Feelings just are. But I will take those feelings sometimes. I'll color my facts, and what I'll do over here will have nothing to do with what's actually going on. And I won't be able to see that. I had lost control of my emotions. And if you don't control your emotions, they'll control you. I was so angry when I got here. I was mad all the time. No matter, I did not recognize any other feeling because everything that hurt me made me mad. I didn't know to say, you hurt my feelings. I'll say, you pissed me off. You know, I did not know how to differentiate between my emotions. So I had a long time with that. Um, I was told that in order to accept something, I didn't have to like it. Oh, I thought if you accepted something, that means you put your stamp of approval on it and you thought it was okay. My sponsor said, well, do you like the fact there's war going on over in such and such? I said, well, not particularly. She said, well, can you do anything about it? I said, well, can I talk about it? She said, nothing exactly. You don't have to like it in order to accept it. You just have to accept that that's the reality of the situation and then make your choices for your life. And I, that, that was a whole new concept for me, to understand that there were some things about J.D. that I didn't like, but I had to accept the fact he did those things. And then I had a choice if I wanted to live with someone who did those things. There's always choices. thing of it is, I never liked my choices. You know, I might have four choices. I don't like any of them. You know, and it always occurred to me, though, see, I'm the kind of person you got to do something even if it's wrong. You just cannot do nothing. You know, just doing nothing. And my sponsor said, everything does not require a response from you. Yeah. She said, every, you know, because I was the kind of person that would sit in the meeting, and if you commented on something, I had to rebut your comment. And the next person would say something, and I would have to say something again. And finally, my sponsor said, shut up. Now, that's real hard on your ego. Well, she had tried real gracefully mentioning to me if on occasion to take the cotton out of my ears and put it in my mouth and what have you. But you'd be surprising how the word shut up got my attention. And I needed that. I needed someone that had the guts to tell me that, you know. And then I'd sit there, hold and help, or I'll say another word. I'll show them. Let them die in ignorance. But I found out I could hear better. <laughs> I could hear something besides the sound of my own voice. Okay. I had to learn that alcoholism being a disease of threefold, that you either have to have abstinence, insanity, or death. As an Al-Anon, I had to learn that our disease is also the same way. You have to have acceptance or you'll have insanity or death. Because if you don't accept it, it will drive you insane. And I didn't realize that until I had to make a 12-step call 
one of our local hospitals. And they had a lady up in the eighth floor, which is a psycho ward, uh, that was there. And they felt that her problem was alcohol-related, that she was living with an alcoholic. And if someone could come and talk to her, then that we would be more beneficial to her than the, the psychiatric treatment that she had put herself in for. And when I was up there, I looked across the room, and there was a lady sitting over there drooling. She was in a catatonic trance. And I recognized her. And she had been in that first group that I used to go to. And she was the one that no matter what the meeting was on would say, but how do you keep him from drinking? But how do you keep him from drinking? And it drove her crazy. And I thought, oh, my God. You know, it is a disease. Our disease is a disease. And it's serious. And I could die. It was very, it was a, you see, God put me a place to see something that I needed to see to help me over that idea in my mind that it's not really that tragic for us, but it is. And then I began to get into the program a little more wholeheartedly. You begin to see and realize that you're not just dealing with a few little icky things here, but you're talking about your life and your gut. That's something you're going to, you know, the only person in the world you never leave nor lose is you. You're the one that's going to have to deal with you from now on. So you best get to know about you, and you better get to be comfortable with you because you're the one, bottom line, that you're going to have to live with. Okay, so now I had my three choices. And then I thought about it. I get, to, I get into words. I love words. And I got thinking about the word alcoholism. And I kept thinking, now, my husband's not drinking. Why isn't he sane? He's not, you know, drinking was one thing, but sober, you know, he's not a joy ride here. <laughs> and he informed me one day that he has alcoholism. It's not alcoholism. <laughs> and he said, I will suffer from the ism the rest of my life, and I have to deal with it on a daily basis. And I thought, oh, isn't that cute? And then I got to thinking, you know, our disease is the same way. I have, I don't ever get alcohol, Al-Anon wasm. You know, I get Al-Anonisms. And that's that I, self, and me. That's that self-centeredness. All the time, the I, self, and me. And it's going to be with me the rest of my life unless I am working on it. So I had to let go of people and stop trying to change them. And that is so subtle at times. It never occurred to me that, uh, like for instance, uh, a very simple manage, uh, way of managing controlling. For those of you who have a spouse or someone, or a child, this will work either with a child too, you are laying their clothes out for them. It's a kind, loving thing to do. And you quit doing it because you see your sponsor says, you're not the mother of a 40-year-old man. And I told her, I said, that's right, I resent laying that crap out, too, because it would, it would occur to me that he'd say, we'd be getting ready to go somewhere, and he'd say, what do you want me to wear? And I'd say, well, I don't care. And he'd say, well, lay me out something, and I wouldn't. He'd say, I'm not wearing that. <laughs> you know, he'd say, I'm not wearing that. And I'd say, well, what do you mean you're not wearing that? He'd say, I don't like that. And so this had caused us a lot of conflict, so I just quit being his mother. Now, this was, you know, it's really difficult when you quit doing something because they keep wanting you to play the game with them. Because that's what's normal. That's not normal not to do that. 
so he decided that he would push the issue. We was getting ready to go to the meeting. He said, what do you want me to wear? And I said, I don't care. I said, just wear whatever you want to wear. He said, well, lay me out something. I said, no, I'm not going to be your mother anymore. I'm, I'm not going to dress you, little boy. I said, so you don't have to do this for yourself. So he decided he'd get even. He was going to force me to continue to do this. And so he went in and he put on a, uh, a sock of one kind and a, a, shoe, a shoe on one foot and a boot on the other, a pair of pants and shirts that did nowhere go to, anywhere, to, and we went to the meeting. I tried not to look at him. And I kept telling myself, I'm not responsible for him. He's an adult. I don't care if other people look at him and think I don't know how to dress him. That's not important. It was, but I kept telling myself this over and over and over in my mind. And when we got back home, he looked at me and he said, I've never been so embarrassed my whole life. But I want to tell you the bottom line to this. I've not had it necessary to dress him ever again. So the hardest things you have to do are the things you have not to do. It's the hardest things are the things you've got to stop doing. And now you're going to find out that you've got a lot of spare time that you never had before. Because I was always so busy taking care of you that I shortchanged me. And now I had time. You know, I was always late trying to get rest. Well, you, when you've got to dress somebody else and go through all the war, by the time you get through with that and actually get his clothes on his body, you've got to just throw yourself together. And then I'd end up putting my makeup on in the car and spearing myself in the eye with a mascara wand and, you know, driving down the road, putting on mascara, you know, doing your nails, going down the road because I had to take care of someone else. Well, see, that's, I don't have to do that anymore because, see, step two says that I can come to believe there's a power that will restore me to sanity. And I was beginning to believe. And my power in the beginning was my sponsor. And she gave me things to do that begin to bring that sanity back in my life, like letting him go and allowing him to dress himself, allowing him to take care of himself. And, and I said, but you don't understand. He doesn't. She said, you don't understand. She said, I understand, but you don't understand. She said, you think he'll not survive. I said, well, I've been taking care of him all these years to keep him from going in the gutter. God forbid. She said, if he'd have gone in the gutter, he might have got help a lot sooner. She said, all you do is you stand in the way of someone else's growth when you do it for them. Because she said, in our literature, it says that if you do something for somebody, you make their failure to do it for them permanent. You don't realize how when you're doing these things for somebody, you are keeping them from ever being able to do that for themselves. Because it took him a long time to learn how to match his clothes. It took him a long time. And it was a big struggle for him. And he, he, he felt really weird about it. And I felt weird about the way he went out of the house sometimes. But it was necessary because I began to see if I dropped dead today, my God, the man couldn't function. And that was not an ego trip. That was the truth. He didn't know how to take care of himself. He didn't, he had, he didn't know how to write a check. He didn't know how to fill out any tax forms. I had taken care of all the administrative work of running a household. He had no idea. And so I decided after I'd been in the program a little while, my sister's husband died, and she said, would you go with me on vacation? I haven't been anywhere for years. And I thought, but I can't leave him because who will take care of him? And I told her my sponsor, she said, God will. God knows, J.D. <laughs> you know, 
you know, I said, but you know, he'll need these meals and he doesn't cook. And she said, there's restaurants. And I said, but what if something happens to something? She says, we'll see. Oh, I love that now. You know, somebody will I'll be sponsoring they'll say, but what will happen if I don't? I said, oh, no, we'll see. <laughs> Lots is a big adventure. <laughs> we'll see. So I went off to Hawaii, and I knew that there would be no way, no way that I could call him every day and talk to him, because if I did, he'd tell me a problem, and I would be in Hawaii trying to fix it in Arkansas. I knew that. So when I got there, I called, and I said, I'm here, I'm okay, I'm getting ready to have a good time, see when I get home, hung up. Now, I was there for 15 days, and I never called home. It was hard. <laughs> you know, you have to keep your hands in your pockets. Don't get near telephones. Walk the beach a lot. <laughs> and I thought about it. I'm not going to lie to you that first year. I mean, it was very difficult to do. But did you know I was being restored? Because I found out that I got through it. And guess what? Everything that could go wrong went wrong with him. The motor on the attic fan burned out. The refrigerator died. The washing machine stopped. It was a plague of mechanical things. And I'd always taken care of all of that, you know. The only casualty that we had was the washing machine. He and a guy that he uh, sponsored decided they'd work on it. And the Maytag man told me it would cost more to put it back together than it would be to buy a new one. But other than that, he handled every one of those things. And what was so funny, on one thing that went wrong, he said he had no idea what to do about it. And he said, so he knew what to do. He called another Al-Anon. <laughs> he called a girl that I sponsored. And he said, I know she has this here somewhere. Do you know where it is? And she said, yes, it's on her Rolodex. He said, thank you. And he found it. And he said, you know, the horror of that for him was, he said, to know that someone living outside our house knew more what was going on inside our house than he did. That embarrassed him enough to where he didn't have to do that anymore. He began to take an interest. He began to want to sit down when we would pay the bills and go through these things together. He wanted to learn how to do the checks. He wanted to learn how. And did you know, I held on. I was afraid to give those things up because what if I give those things up and then he doesn't need me? He might not want me. You know, that sick need that we have to be needed. You know, I can remember when he asked me to marry him, he said, I need you. And it sounded better than I love you because they keep you longer. So you want to keep that need created so they'll keep you. It gives you job security, you know. Haven't you ever had a job where you did something on your job and you don't want anybody else to know how to do that procedure? Because if they did, then they might could fire your ass. So therefore, as long as you know and they don't know, you got it. Well, see, that's how I've been doing with all the house and all this stuff. I had my position there and I didn't want to change, but that's not the way it is today. And it's a good thing because as much as I'm gone, he has to take care of all of these things. And my God, the freedom it gave me to realize that we could share responsibilities instead of it being my job, his job. I don't know about y'all, but garbage was a big deal at our house. We had major problems with garbage. The problem was he didn't take it out when I wanted it took out. And, and my sponsor said, are you going to allow him to do that? Is that a job that he wants to do? And I said, yeah, we sit down. And I told him I do all the cooking and everything. Would he mind to take out the garbage? He said, no. She says, well, then let him. And I said, but he doesn't take it out the right time. She said, that's not your job. 
She said, you have choices. Now, you either take the garbage out yourself and shut up. She's big on shut up. Because <laughs> I was big on bitching, see? <laughs> J.D. says I'd bitch if I was hung with a new rope. Uh, and she said, your second choice is you can allow him to take it out whenever he chooses to, but don't bitch. I said, I don't get to bitch on either one of those. And she said, that's right, because she said, that's a character defect in you. And she said, we're going to work on that. And so I found out that I could just leave the garbage there. And if it got to driving me crazy, I got up, I took it out, and I kept my mouth shut. And I found that when I was doing it like that, it didn't bother me and it didn't bother him. And we didn't fight over the garbage anymore. He squeezed the toothpaste in the middle of the tube. I hated that. My sponsor gave me such logical suggestions like, get two tubes of toothpaste. It never occurred to me in nine years of marriage to get two tubes of toothpaste. But I'm very logical. It's real funny how we can miss on these little bitty things. And when I realized it wasn't the big, big things that drove me crazy, it was these little bitty things. You know, like for instance, he would come in from work and he would start undressing at the front door and there would be clothes strung from one end of my house to the other. And I had two dogs and they'd carry the clothes around. <laughs> so the old maid here would come behind and pick up all the crap, bitching and griping. And I said, J.D., there's a clothes hamper right here next to the door in the bathroom. Why can't you put the clothes? And I don't know. It's just not convenient. And I thought, maybe we need one here, 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 and here across the house. And my sponsor said, uh, does that bother you? And I said, drives me crazy. She said, then leave it alone. She said, things that drive you crazy, leave them alone. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you have a choice. You can pick up the clothes and not bitch, or you can let them lay and not bitch. And I said, well, what will happen if we let them lay? She said, I don't know. Let's see. <laughs> I said, okay. So we're letting them lay. We're letting the little dudes lay. And I mean, we got a week's worth all over the house. And he went to his meeting. And he brought some guys home with him. And he came in, and it's like he saw him for the first time. He goes, guys, as you can tell, my wife's no housekeeper. And I looked at it, and I said, yes, and y'all can tell those are my ducky shorts. I've never had to pick up clothes again, either. It's amazing to see what will happen. It's amazing. Another thing I used to do that was real insane, I would turn over in the morning and look at him to see what kind of day I was going to have. You know, we talk about turning our will and our lives over to a power greater than ourselves. And how can you do that? Well, I don't know. I don't know why we have such a problem turning our will and life. I turn my will and life over to anything that had it. I turned it over to a practicing drunk. We're laying right there in the bed. Because when I'd look at him and say, I wonder what kind of day I'm going to have. And it's based on what kind of day he has. I have just turned my will in my life over that guy laying asleep right there in the bed. If I'm going down the road and the guy zips in front of me, pisses me off, I can turn my will in my life over to him. Have you ever sat there and watched the guy in the rearview mirror to see what he was going to do so you'd know what you was going to do? you just turned your will in your life over the idiot behind you. But probably he's got a bigger idiot in front of him. It occurred to me that I turned my life over to the sales clerk. I let them upset me. 
Any time I let what other people did affect me to that extent that allowed it to upset me, I was turning my will and my life over them because, see, I was, I was giving them my anger, I was giving them my feelings, and they just walked all over them. They really did, and that's, I couldn't understand that. Now, I want to tell you about this insanity. J.D. was home. He had not had a drink in two or three months. And I woke up one morning, and I said, oh, he's going to get drunk today. I knew he was. It was raining. Rainy day. Mm-hmm. Bad news. Rainy days. I looked. It's his daughter's birthday. She won't have anything to do with him. He's going to see the calendar. He's going to know it's her birthday. He's going to go crazy. He's going to get drunk. He's just going to get drunk. Well, i got to take the dogs to the groomer. I'll take him with me. Get up! He said, I want to sleep. I said, you want to get drunk, don't you? He said, what the hell's the matter with you? I'm laying here asleep. I said, it's raining in Vicky's birthday. You're going to get drunk. I said, you're going to the groomer. He said, I'm not going to the groomer. I said, yes, you are. He said, no, I'm not. And I got up and I said, well, i got to take these dogs. God darn it, it takes me two months to get an appointment over there. I am taking these dogs. But you're going to go in. We got in this and I got halfway there and I realized the dogs were still at home. <laughs> I called my sponsor and I said, you're right, I'm insane. There is no question about it. I am insane. Did you know that being powerless sometimes means being powerless over my reaction to someone else's behavior? Or being powerless over my reaction to their reaction? Well, you can get in a string of that reaction if you're not careful. I always thought that we didn't need nuclear reactors. We just needed a room full of Al-Anons. We could, we could do the world. <laughs> Oh, Lord. And I found out, too, that in my insanity, I used to love because of my need. And now I need because of the love. It's different. It's different altogether. Um, okay, let's see. I want to tell you about uh, something. You know, I, the, the funniest things to me are the things that I have done since coming into the program. They're sometimes more bizarre than anything I could have done otherwise. Um, I was redoing my house. And I had gotten me some uh, joint cement in a gallon. I don't know if anybody's ever done any of this kind of work. But it comes pre-mixed in a gallon. Or you can get it in a box where you've got to add a little bit, add some water, add a little bit. And that's just a nightmare. It's much better when it comes in a gallon like paint. And so my sister had wanted me to come do some at her house. And I had run out of the joint cement. So we went over to this store where I would bought it. And they were out. And they said, but Sears probably has it. Now, Sears was one of those institutions that I had resentments about. <laughs> But anyway, um, so I went over to the Sears department, and I explained to the man in the paint and hardware department what I wanted, and he said, we don't have that. He said, we have the little box of powder. But now over at the McCain store, they might have it in the gallon can. And I said, well, could you call and find out? Save me going over there for nothing. And he said, I'll be glad to. Well, he got busy, and so when he got the number, he said, here, you explain to the guy what you want. Now, it sounded simple to me. I said, I wanted a can, a five-gallon can of pre-mixed joint cement. I did not want the powder in the box. Do you have it? Yes. Great. I will come get it. I got over there and he handed me a box of powder. And I looked at him and I said, you lied to me. 
I specifically told you I wanted a can. He said, well, it'll do the same thing. And it made me furious, and I wanted to hit him. But Al-Anon said that I, my sponsor told me that I could no longer hit people. She wouldn't give me that. <laughs> now, I had beaten my umbrella to death in a closet. I went into a closet and grabbed an umbrella and just beat it to death. And see, God was real good because I went to bingo with the group the next Friday night and won an umbrella. Well, God knew I needed one. But now, so I'm standing in front of this jerk who has lied to me, and I want to hit him, but I don't want to be arrested. And so I just happened to look, and right next to him was the plants department. And there was this beautiful philodendron sitting right there by his cash register. So I went over there and went... And I bit all up and down the whole... And my sister walked away. And he stood back. And when I got home and I was telling Lubell about what I'd done, she said, Oh, Lordy. She said, That's going to be one hell of an amends. It never occurred to me that I was going to have to see. I wasn't down that far in the steps. That was one hell of a means. We'll talk about that one later. But the worst kind of insanity was not these insane acts. The insanity that I had that was so bad for me was the little thought that would say, this time it's going to be different. Now that's insanity. I know now when I hear that thought, my little alarm system goes off and it goes, ding, 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 ding. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Just one won't hurt. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Those are the things that were just driving me out of my mind. Now, the power that I had greater than myself, I like to say, by the time I got here, I had given up any type of concept of a higher power in my life when I was 12 years old and my dad died. I felt that God had killed my daddy, and I didn't want any part of it because God was in charge of life and death. Everybody told me that. So I just did not want anything to do with that God. But I had a concept in my mind of a God, and it was uh, a cross between uh, a gimme God and a gotcha God and Santa Claus. You know, I'd say, God, give me this, God, give me that, God, give me this, God, give me that. Or I felt like that if you didn't do just perfect, God got you. And when something bad happened to me, God was getting me. I knew that. Well, today I know that that was the natural consequence of my actions for being in that pile of whatever I was in. You know... Things have a tendency, what goes round comes round. What you sow, you reap. And it never occurred to me that I might do something t real tacky today, and three years from now, from another area, something tacky happened to me, and I'd say, well, I didn't do anything to them, but I've done something over here. So what you sow, you reap, because it does. What, what you give out does come back. So the third step said I had to come to believe. Now, that's the second step, Mary Pearl. Wait a minute. Third step is i got to make a decision i got to make a decision. Now, you see, I had to come to believe in a God before I could make a decision to turn my will and my life over. I could not give myself to the God that I had when I came. I couldn't do that. 
Now, I could allow Lubell to give me directions. I could allow her to do that. And she kept saying, but I can't be your God. This is what you've always done. You've allowed somebody to be your God. She said, you're going to have to have a power that's greater than a human being. Something that's greater because human beings, we can't do everything. So we're going to have to have a power greater. And I said, well, how do you find that power? And she said, the power is there, and it's hiding in the one place you never think to look. It's inside of you. She says, you've got to look inside. And I said, what do you mean? She said, do you ever have that voice on the inside that tells you, you really shouldn't do this? You really shouldn't do that. She says, this is a conscience, or it may be the voice of your God living within you. But she said, look to there for your guidance. And she said, you're going to have to get quiet on the inside. Because, see, I was always on the inside. I was just going crazy. My mind, I could not turn my mind off. There was no way. And she said, you're going to have to be able to do that. And she, I said, but you don't understand. When I lay down at night, all these problems come across my mind. And I said, and I find it very hard to go to sleep. She said, well, why don't you do this? She said, in the kitchen we had a light that you could pull down. It was weighted or push it back up. She said, in your mind's eye in your bedroom, she says, pull down a basket that's on one of those weighted and put all your problems in the basket and send them up. And she says, tomorrow morning, if you want to take the basket and get them back, all right. But tonight, let them go. And she said, and when you send them up, just say, to God, I'm taking them to you. Here they are. And then you go to sleep. And I said, that'll never work. She said, do it anyway. <laughs> you know, the contempt part of investigation, you know. I know it won't work. It's like people say, you ever had any of that? To no. You want some? No. Why? I don't like it. How do you know? Well, I don't know, but it just don't look like I like it. Stupid. That's stupid. I know that today. That's stupid. But I used to be like that. But now I'll, do any, I'll try anything or do anything, because what the heck? What have you got to lose? You've got your problem. That's what you could possibly lose. And if you don't lose it, you're no worse off than what you were, you know. So, so I mean, the odds are good. You know, if you're a betting person, the odds are good. And did you know I began to sleep at night? I began to sleep at night. And I couldn't see that a lot of the stuff that was really bothering me was any different, except it wasn't bothering me so much. And that began to make me feel a little better. And so my car began to give me problems. Now, I, di I didn't do well with mechanical things going wrong. It's like they ought to make a button on things that are mechanical, that when they go wrong, you can punch it and they go, oh, because it hurt me when they went wrong. And it was like I wanted to inflict pain back. How dare you break? You know, I expected things to last forever, forever. And so here was my car. Now, the, the funny part about my car is the carburetor was giving me problems. And I'd go down the road, and my car would turn itself off. I was powerless. My car was powerless. <laughs> and I had a power car. <laughs> so everything went off. The brakes, the steering, everything went weird, you know, when it would turn itself off, which was frightening. And so I went to the shop, and the guy said, you need to have the carburetor rebuilt. I didn't have the money to have it rebuilt. And he said, well, take this little thing of gas, and you can pour it through the top, and it'll backfire, and maybe it'll knock some. He said, what it is, I think, is there's some dirt on the inside of you, of the carburetor that's blocking the jet, and it can't get the power. And that was just like me. I had so much dirt on the inside, and it was blocking me, and I couldn't get the power because I had all this stuff separating me from the power, and that's the way it was in that car. 
And so I'd pour that stuff through, and sure enough, it'd backfire and it'd run a few days. And then it got to where I was having to do it every day, and then it got to where I was having to do it two or three times a day, and that began to get on my nerves. Now, I'd gone to these meetings long enough, and you hear this stuff, and you hear it, but just hearing it doesn't do anything. You've got to do it. And I kept hearing, let go, let God, let go, let God. So that day I decided, all right, I was going to give that damn car to God. You know? And I said, okay, God, this is Mary Pearl at 409 Healy. I didn't want him to mix me up with anybody else. Because <laughs> you see, it was real important for me to see if God was going to do something for me. Now, he did it for the other people in the group. I saw them, and they would say that God did this and God did that. And I thought, well, boy, that's neat if he does, but I'm not good like them. So he's not going to do that for me. I don't deserve that kind of treatment. And so I just told him, I said, here it is. I said, I, all I want is to get home. Would you please help me? Because I'm desperate today. And I went out there, and they told me, that, you know, take the action. So I poured the stuff in, turned it on, nothing happened. It chugged and spit and what have you, and quit. And I said, God, it ain't getting there like that. I said, now, all I've asked here is just to get me home. It's not that big a deal. It's not but a couple of miles. But I sure want to go home. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I'm hot. I said, I want to get home more than anything today. So I turned it on again. It chugged a little bit. And then all, and I said, God, you're going to have to smooth it out. It won't get there like that. And then it just smoothed out. And I was shocked. And I drove my little car home. And I got out of it. Now, a lot of people might say that was a coincidence or it just took that long. And it's not important. Like I said, it's not important what other people think today. But I know that on the inside of me, I had a feeling that I didn't have back there on the highway. And when I got out of my car, I got down and I knelt on the ground in my yard by my car. And I said, thank you to a God I had not believed in for getting me home. And I knew on the inside that I had asked for some help and that I had received help. Now, that I knew. And I felt like there might be a suspicion that that God might have something to do with me. And that's where I began to start on my journey to having that God. And so now, and after a while, some more things happened that would confirm with me. And I began then to try to develop a God consciousness by asking God to go with me. And whatever I did to ask him to accompany me, I'd say, come on, God, let's go to the store. Come on, God, let's go to work. God, we're going to get in the car now. God, help me drive. God, help me. And I begin to just to do and say it, whether I believed it or not. But I begin to feel different. And I begin to feel more calm on the inside when I do that. And I found out that my driving habits changed when God started riding with me. I no longer found it necessary to cuss that guy out that pulled up in front of me. Instead, I'd say, God bless that man. He needs some help. Or I would say, God bless this person. God bless that person. And I wasn't becoming a, a, a spiritual giant or a religious nut. It's just that I was trying to practice the presence of God. And as I did that, I began to feel different on the inside. And I didn't hate that guy for cutting me off at the past. I no longer had those feelings. And that anger, that terrible anger I had on the inside of me, had begun to go away. The anger was beginning to recede. And you see, all my life, I had taken credit for things that God had done for me. If, I, if things turned out good, I did it. If it screwed up, God did it to me. You know? And my attitude began to change, and I began to recognize now the little things, those little coincidences, those miracles in which God remains anonymous. I began to see those things. And then the insanity began to leave me. The insanity. I no longer found it necessary to physically abuse people. Uh, the verbal abuse was longer in going. Uh, but my, my thought and my thinking began to get better. 
I didn't think such crazy thoughts all the time. And when I did think them, I could uh, recognize that I was thinking a crazy thought. But an awareness began to come to me that I was God's kid. I was a child of God. I wasn't a piece of trash anymore. I began to feel better about myself as a human being. I knew it didn't change those things I'd done in the past, but I was trying to live different today. I was trying to practice those things. Uh, I had a little uh, incident that happened down where I work. I was real short on money, and we had to have $130 to survive, and it wasn't payday. And I said, God, here's the problem. Let's see what you can do it. Because, see, I got like Bluebell now. Let's see what's going to happen. You know? <laughs> and I uh, went on, and it was Thursday, I, I worked uh, at a, I was real lucky. I was one of those, I had a four-day work week. We were the first insurance company in the state to do that. And so on Thursday afternoon, about 3 o'clock, personnel office called and said, we need you to, to see you for a few minutes. And I said, I wonder why. Maybe it's somebody's bring up. I didn't have it on my calendar. Anyway, I went down there, and they said, you know, we made, the auditors have caught it, and we made a mistake on your pay last year, and here's a check for $140. And I sat there, I went back to my office, and I cried. And I said, God, he took care of the 130 I needed and gave me $10 extra. I mean, what kind of God is that, you know? But you see, I realized that God not only would take care of what I needed, but he also gave me some of what I wanted. And, you know, what I want is not always what I need. You know, but I begin to see now that God would take care. We had a conference that we were going to go to, and it was our first AA conference. And, oh, we were excited, and then we said, we can't afford to go to that. That's down in Hot Springs, all that money. And J.D. didn't even have a job. You know, he got fired when he got sober, and it had been months without a job. And uh, I said to my sponsor, you know, I was telling her, and she said, well, have you thought about asking God? Well, No. And she said, well, why don't you just ask? And so J.D. and I, this began something new, too, for us. We got by our, we, the two of us knelt side by side and held hands and prayed about something. You see, there was a, a beginning of a change in our life where we could pray together. And we just asked God if it be his will, we'd like to go. I went to work the next day, used our watch line, called down to Hot Springs, and made a reservation. Thirty minutes later, J.D. called, and he had a job. We took an action. And God was right there. And I want you to know that uh, we like $35 when it came time to go to the conference. We like $35 having the bare minimum. This was eating cheese and crackers in the room, girl. But we wanted to go bad enough it didn't matter. You know, and J.D. said, I don't have anything to wear. Well, we'd never been to a conference. We didn't know you could be casual. You know, we just didn't know. And we were too stupid to ask, you know. <laughs> and uh, so he said, I need a new suit. And I said, we, well, we can't afford a suit, my God. Because, see, in my mind, you couldn't have a suit unless it was three or four hundred dollars because that was the standard of living that I was accustomed to and, that, and what I wanted in there wasn't being able to live like that in those times. And that was good for me, too, because during that period of real hard times, I learned that things were not so damn important. They're nice, but they're not necessary. And I got to thinking a lot when I was paying all, all those things and, and not having lunches and things of that nature, I determined, you know, that that couch that I had to have that cost so much that today. I keep it. I call it my spike couch. I keep it in spite of all else to show me that things aren't important. But anyway, we like this thirty-five dollars, and I got a brochure in from a place in in, uh, in Illinois that said they had suits. It was a closeout, four-piece suit for forty-nine ninety-five, and I thought can't be much. 
But I didn't throw it away, and as time got closer, I thought, what the heck, nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? So I ordered it, and it came in, and J.D. was trying it on, and it was gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And I said, how does it fit? And he said, well, let me see. He said, they got this old inspection tag watered up, and he pulled out a 20, a 10, and a 5. Our $35 was in the pocket of the suit. And, you know, I said, I'd never thought to tell God to do it that way. So don't put God in a box, you know. Don't try to tell God how to. I was real bad about, you know, saying, here's the problem. Now, God, here's what you need to do. Well, God doesn't need my advice because he does it. And, you know, I always thought, well, my way wasn't that bad, but he just wanted to surprise me. (laughs) The arrogance in that. But God, to me, meant good, orderly directions. And I begin to have some of those in my life. Let me see if I have anything else. I know I'm running out of time here, but I wanted to try and cover the three steps this morning. Um, the selfishness and the self-centeredness, that is the root of all our troubles, it tells us in the big book. And that was, and as long as self, self is that thing that gets between me and God. Self will get between you and God. What you want, what you think, all like that. And see, I thought that if you were going to be Having God in charge of your will, that means you just sort of float along with the tide and just take whatever comes, you know, it's all right. And I didn't find that to be the way for me at all. I felt that God would give me orderly directions, and each morning when I'd get up, I would do the third step prayer. And then if I didn't hear something specifically to do in meditation, I would do what was right in front of me to do. Clean the house. Go to work. (laughs) You know, there's certain things that are right there. But I always felt good during the course of the day because I could plan what was going to happen. Whether I could plan what I wanted to do. But what happened wasn't usually what I planned. But I could go with that. Because I knew that because I'd turned my will over that day that anything that happened that day was going to be for my better good in the long run. It was going to teach me how to do something. It was going to teach me not to do something. It was going to give me some guidance that I didn't have the day before. Because this power was going to work in my life. And I began to do this with the people I sponsored. And I had this one girl in particular that did not have a God, and she was having a lot of problems. And the thing about it is, as I began to work the program and make it a daily habit, it became automatic for me to do and to talk about God now. And uh, so uh, she was going to come over and pick me up, and we were going to the meeting that night. And she said, you know, I'm a little fearful because we have a bad weather forecast. And I said, well, don't worry about it. God's going with us. She said, Okay. And I didn't go into any big explanation about all this. I just said, I've asked God to go with us, and it's going to be okay. Well, we went, and while we were at the meeting, there was a big sleet storm that came in, and the roads were covered with ice going home, and as we were coming down the freeway, just as we topped this big overpass, she saw all these lights down below her where the cars were all crashed. And so she slammed on her brakes, and she began to, to go in the circles, and I said, Jennifer, turn in the direction of your slide. And she didn't hear me because she was so frightened. And I said, turn in the direction of the slide. And she didn't. And so I grabbed the wheel and I turned it just before we went off the overpass. But I was never frightened. I was never afraid. And there was a 27-car pileup, and we were the only car that was not touched. And we were right in the middle. Now, I can tell you, my faith grew greater, but she came to believe. You know... And it was so good. She said that when we got home, she said, 
she believes that I believed in my God. And that if, if my God would work for me, she wanted to know Him. And I thought, what a neat thing. What a neat thing. And I found that as I have continued to work my program and to share what God does for me, that it does make a difference. Thank you.